This is Leewood Online, a ministry of Leewood Baptist Church, located in the Kansas City area. For more information about us, visit us online at www.leewoodbaptist.com. Good morning, I'm Erica Arbuckle, and today we're going to be reading from chapter 7 of Matthew, verses 1 through 6. You can find that on page 812 of your Pew Bible. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. All right, let me pray for us one more time. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thanks for this particular word and what it means for our community. Thanks for the, the beauty and the invitation to repentance and the call to healing and to integrity, to wholeness. Thanks for the hope that it provides, actually. God, thanks that you came to actually deal with our brokenness in a way that we can be honest about it without threat to our identity. It actually is an invitation to freedom. So now as we open up your word and as we hear it, would you help us to apply it? This is actually a familiar passage. We've um, heard sound bites from this text most of our lives, even if we're not followers of Jesus. If even as our first time in church, first sermon we've heard, sermon we've, heard we've, we've uh, encountered some of these phrases. So would you help us know like, what you mean and give us your heart for it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, hey, quick introduction. Let me first say thanks to Jimmy Dodd for last week. Um, I did uh, come down with COVID, um, and I was actually walking in my neighborhood uh, with our little dog, and a neighbor kind of stopped me and said that we were like across the street being safe, and he said, hey man, I heard you had COVID. I said, yeah, we know it wasn't, wasn't too bad, um, but I was walking on back, and this little girl, um, she's probably six years old, five years old, uh, she stopped me, and she goes, do you have the COVIDs? Um, and I was like, I'm sorry, excuse me, what? And she's like, well, that man said that you had the COVIDs. Um, and I said, oh, you know, yeah, we, we did, but we we're doing okay, and had a little bit of a headache. And then she said, I wonder if my mom has the COVID. She always has a headache. Um, <laughs> I thought, I, I don't know. But uh, it actually wasn't very severe. Uh, we had a pretty mild case, which I'm really fortunate. Thanks to those of you guys who prayed. Adrian is still trying to get smell and taste back, which apparently is a weird sensation. But overall, we are we're doing great. Um, so Jimmy Dodd preached last week, the text right before this, on anxiety, and he referenced that we're in this larger series through the book of Matthew. In a lot of ways, you could make a connection. Remember, this is one sermon Jesus is giving, so we've broken it up over lots of weeks, but he would be just minutes away from talking about anxiety as he comes into this section about judging others. And maybe you could connect the dots logically of one of the places that we feel the most anxiety is in our relationships. And in fact, actually applying a text like this and the way it gets used maybe even against you from people who are 
family or friends or loved ones who say, you have no right to say that what I'm doing or pursuing isn't legitimate or isn't good for me or isn't whole or I shouldn't have that. So this has actually been weaponized in some ways towards us. We've actually lost relationships over things that have been quoted out of this passage. And so there's a place where the anxiety we feel in relationships, Jesus is now beginning to address, which I just love the beauty and the realism of the scriptures. The things that haunt you, the things that you dream of, the things that you long for, God speaks to. And he's in this larger section really about about seeing. So again, it's one sermon. And back in chapter 6, we had this place in chapter 6, verse 22, where Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So he's speaking about eyes and what we see. So if your eye is healthy, the whole body will be full of light. And if your eye is bad, the whole body will be full of darkness. If in the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And it's in a context of treasure of what you love and long for and value and made the point that Jesus is saying hey how you see the world how you see what you need how you even see who God is changes everything about you so he's in this section about seeing he's talked about how you see masters you just have two options it's either God himself or or the God of this world how you see anxiety and what you think you need now now how you see your own sin in light of someone else's sin. In verse 7, he's going to talk about how you see people that are dangerous who might misuse your humility like he describes them as dogs and pigs who would trample down and attack you. How do you see people that are actually dangerous? He's going to talk about how you see God when you pray. He'll talk about how you see what it means to love people and embody the law through, through doing what you would want someone to do for you. How you see entrance into the kingdom. Is it why? Then you can just add Jesus to whatever you're already doing. Or is it this narrow and exclusive thing? How do you see the king of the kingdom and what he is promising you is is where he's going? How do you see false teachers and bad fruit in people's lives? How do you assess that? How do you see the idea of relating to God by knowing him rather than working for him? How do you see the foundation for your life that you're going to build everything on so it's one sermon Jesus is a a masterful teacher he knows what we need and he's now going to talk about how we see our own brokenness in the middle of this need for salvation for for alignment with the kingdom remember he's talking about what it looks like to live in the kingdom and I think logs and specs are misalignment to kingdom values You could describe that as sin. You could say our sin and dysfunction and pathology and brokenness, all the stuff that is wrong with the world is us choosing a different kingdom and and misaligning, saying, no, I won't follow the God of the Bible. I won't follow his text that tells me what to do. I won't follow King Jesus. I'm going to be my own king. And when we do that, we cross a line into sin and that kind of dealing with the misalignment in our heart and in other people's hearts is what this text is after. What do you do with people that you know are living outside the bounds of God's kingdom? How do you relate to them, especially if they're brothers and sisters, they're in the family and refusing to follow King Jesus? What what do you do about that? That's what this text is aimed at. Now let me just kind of throw a little bit of hype on the top of this. I think this is one of the most commonly quoted passages of Scripture. I think it's one of the most familiar texts that we have kind of an all of religion. I think it's one of the most quoted texts. I think it's also one of the most underapplied 
text in the sense that the meaning is really clear. We tended to stop in verse 1 and never get down to his meaning of dealing with the log in our own eyes. So it's simultaneously one of the most famous and one of the most under-applied texts, which I think gets to the root of some of our human issue. We love to kind of have phrases and we love to have weaponized defenses against other people, but rarely do we go all the way down into our hearts. I think actually, too, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, this is one of the most easy texts in the Scriptures to agree with, even if it's deeper than you thought it was. I think you would agree with what's on the surface of not judging people and not being judgmental. You don't have to be a Christian to agree that that's a good way to live. But actually what he's going to name of what that means in the invitation into something deeper, I think you'll actually agree with that as well, even if it is a surprise to you about the way God sees you and your sin. So, so it's this really interesting, like underapplied, often quoted, very famous, and yet often misunderstood text. Again, I think it's one that too has caused some of the most pain in your relationships. I bet you if you think about things that have been said to you, quoted from the scriptures that have hurt you, it could be a passage like this where you've been called judgmental. You've been said that you, you actually were judging people and had no right to do that. And, and maybe you were. Maybe you were being hypocritical. Maybe it was actually meant to be an invitation to something. But, but we actually have an edge to how we've heard some of this text. And so, so I want to ask you to lean in because I think it's something that you'll agree with what Jesus says, but I think it will also actually surprise you just a little bit. I think what's at stake for us is actually something a little bit deeper than, than we've first imagined. So here's what I want to do. I want to just walk through what he commands and then how he illustrates that and how he calls us to apply that. Those will be kind of the movement that we walk through the text. So look with me in verse 1 of chapter 7. Here's the command. Here's this often quoted sentence. He says, Judge not that you be not judged. Okay, on the surface, we would go, yes, of course. And then when you start to apply that, you have a ton of questions. Like, is he saying that we can't judge anything as right or wrong? Like, parents, you know you have to make a judgment call about what is in and out of bounds with your children. You're actually not a very good parent if you're like, just let everybody decide their own way. If you want to touch the hot stove, touch the hot stove. You have all the freedom in the world. You go, no, 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 don't touch that. That is wrong. Don't do that. Don't hurt yourself, right? So we make judgments all the time so we initially go yeah that's a good way to live and then we have these questions like well where's the boundaries how do we actually apply it where does it actually work and some of it is in our understanding of the word judge we normally only think in terms of condemnation but the, actually the range of the word is pretty wide right it can mean to like sort things out it can mean to determine right and wrong it can mean to kind of put something in a place and give it some sort of value it has a wide wide lexical range what we understand it to mean though is Jesus cautioning us not to say something is right and something is wrong in fact to actually call something a log or a speck is to say this doesn't belong there it's judgmental to say hey you have a speck in your eye if saying something is wrong is wrong is out of bounds right does that make sense so we, so we can't be saying that you can't be saying simply saying hey this affair is not helpful for you Hey, this thing that you're doing in your relationships is causing pain to those around you. He's not prohibiting that. What he's prohibiting is judgmentalism. And he defines it in the next verse, right? He says, judge not that you should not judge, in verse 2, for with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured 
to you. So what he's aiming at is hypocrisy to say you use a double standard. You have two ways of measuring. You have a way that is okay for you. When you blow up at your kids and yell and scream and cuss, it's because you've had a bad day and they're disrespectful. When someone else does it, they're out of control, they're unrighteous, they're sinful, right? So when you take from somebody something that you feel entitled to and it hurts them, you get this sense in your own mind, well, that's what you deserve. But when they do that to you, it's way out of bounds and it's catastrophic and should be judged. What he's saying is you have actually this mismeasuring. You, you have two different standards. And so judgmentalism is to judge somebody else by a different standard than what you judge yourself with. Which again, I don't think there's any controversy about that. You would go, yeah, that's actually just makes sense. It's the way we live. You don't like to be around people that are what Jesus calls in verse 5, hypocrites who, who indulge in things and then lash out at you for doing the very same thing. Right? So we actually have a low tolerance for that. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel very human. It doesn't feel very loving. And he's saying you, you have this way of doing that because what you do is you put yourself at the center of the kingdom and therefore you have your own standards and everyone else doesn't measure up to your standards. We can make really simple, silly jokes about like driving. You're the one who actually always drives the right speed. Everybody else is either too slow or too fast based on your righteous standards. You could go like with a simple illustration like that. But you could also go to things like faithfulness and how you understand like your own indulging in things like pornography and how maybe it's understandable because of your stress and your need to soothe. And yet when it would happen to you and someone was unfaithful to you, you can just feel that outrage and that hurt and that sense of betrayal. But we have a way when we're in the middle of sin of skewing things in such a way that we'll let ourselves off the hook while we put somebody else kind of 10x on the hook. What Jesus is talking about is not having two standards, not having two measures, right? He's saying this thing that you measure, it's going to be measured back to you. That's simply what he's aiming at. So let me just say like what he's, what he's not saying. Right? Again, he's not saying that you can't make a judgment call and say that something is right or wrong or black or white. Even this text, right, he's going to say specks. Later on, he's going to call somebody dogs and pigs. He actually tells you not to relate to somebody who's dangerous, right? That's a judgment call. He's going to talk about seeing somebody by their fruit and making a call of healthy or, or not healthy, right? So even in this text, Jesus can't be saying, don't say something is out of bounds. Let everybody just decide morality for themselves. He's not saying that you can't be involved in the justice system at all, which sometimes in history people have misunderstood it to mean that. He's not saying that you have no right to tell somebody that they're out of bounds. You should just mind your own business. He's not saying that unless you've been perfect, you can't speak to someone else's imperfection. Right? He's not saying those who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. He's not saying you don't have the right if you're not perfect. He's also not saying that the standard of judgment is relative. As if like if you just send out good vibes and that's what karmically comes back to you, right? That's kind of what you might want them to say there, right? The measure you use, it's going to be measured to you. So if I say nothing's out of bounds, that means it's relative for me and nothing's out of bounds for me. He, he can't be meaning that. And actually that logic is just chaos in the world. We don't actually mean that there can be this relative understanding of morality, right? We, we wouldn't get into absurd places like we can call human trafficking wrong. We can. 
We could just say black and white, there's a morality that you can't not know human trafficking is wrong. You go to other extreme examples, right? You see things that happen in Afghanistan and go, hey, that, that is wrong. The problem is, as you go from those extremes closer to your life, you have a harder time discerning when does it go from adultery to lust? When does it go from murder to hate? Because Jesus is already in chapter 5, remember it's one big sermon, giving us these six kind of frameworks. If you, hey, you've heard it said, don't kill anybody, please don't kill anybody. That's a really good rule. Hey, but it's deeper than that. I'm saying if you hate somebody, you're guilty of the same kind of thing. So Jesus isn't saying, hey, there's a relativism. Everyone can kind of define their own morality. That actually would be chaos in the world. What he's saying is that there actually is a standard, but it's God's standard. God, God is the one who measures. God is the one who says what is holy. God is the one who says what is in and out and right and wrong, what is in the kingdom and what is outside of the kingdom. And what you and I do when we have these rival kingdoms of our heart is we have a misplaced understanding of morality and we will use our standard against other people. Right? We'll weaponize our standard against other people. What he's simply calling us to is stop and trust what God has said as the measuring rod for what is right and wrong. The Proverbs would even talk about like unjust measurements. Like there was in the markets, there were scales that were askew on purpose. And it's an unjust thing to have your scale calibrated wrong to where on one side you're going to put more gold than you are what something's actually worth. Right? Those, those missed measures or those wrong scales on purpose is actually an outrage. Right? You can't function in society with those things. So Jesus is simply saying, not don't make a judgment call, but don't use two different standards. Right? He explains it that way. And we hear him, we agree with him, and we also struggle. So now he gives an illustration to kind of show us, right? He's this masterful teacher. And so he starts in verse 3 and he says, why? Hey kids, like when your parents go like, why did you do that? They're rarely asking for like a logical explanation. It's kind of an indictment, right? When they say, why did you do that? Or what were you thinking? They don't really want to be like, would you just connect the dots for me? It's actually a way of saying, hey, that's out of bounds. Right? So when Jesus goes, hey, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that's in your own eye? This is that double standard. This is the two different ways of measuring. Right? You'll see what's in their eye, but you won't notice even what's in your eye. Or how do you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. So he actually takes this kind of carpentry illustration, right? That's Jesus' background. And it's actually kind of a humorous illustration, to be honest. And I first encountered that when I was a youth pastor in Wichita. We were working through the book of Matthew. And uh, this is like 2004. Cutting-edge video technology. We watched the Gospel of Matthew word for word, kind of on video. Someone acted it out. Super low cinema quality, but it's before YouTube. We got away with it. So we just walked our way through the entire book of Matthew. When we get to the Sermon on the Mount, here's Jesus. And I think it's like probably made in the 80s, so it's a little bit cheesy anyway. But he's on this mountain giving this example. And when he gets to this section, he pulls a stick out and he holds this stick up to his eye. And the whole crowd begins to laugh. And I don't know why I had missed it up to that point, but it took this 1980s Jesus film, word for word thing, for me to realize, oh, Jesus is being ironic here. He's actually enticing you to see the foolishness of this in a way that you would kind of laugh and chuckle so then he could show you the foolishness of the way you see 
yourself. So he uses this kind of humorous illustration. And I think there's three things that I want to draw from this illustration. What he's saying is, is there's a way you have of seeing something in somebody's eye that's small, but you don't notice the big thing in your eye. Here's the first thing I think he wants to teach us. It's about perspective, okay? It's about how you see something. So when something is close to you, it's bigger for you. When it's far away, it seems smaller. So I have some pictures, right? So if you notice this first one, and maybe you've done these kids like in class or you've seen these. Right? So this is like a 10-inch dinosaur. And the people are really far away in the background. They look tiny compared to this huge Godzilla, right? So kids, you know, where you can like squish someone's head like that, right? You're only doing this. Their head's way bigger. But from your perspective, because it's close, it looks like you can do something really big when it's actually pretty small. This next slide is pretty hilarious. This golf ball that's like this big, right? It's this big of a golf ball. But it looks gigantic because of the perspective. Okay, here's what Jesus is saying. When it comes to sin and brokenness and dysfunction, we have a way of looking at someone else's issue and magnifying that. In the kingdom of God, the way it ought to be is that your sin should feel really big to you because it's close to you. You deal with the implications of that. You see the pain on your family members' faces. You, you deal with the consequences. Rather than minimizing your stuff from a perspective, he's not saying your sin is always bigger. He's not saying in shame you should be ashamed of yourself and your stuff is always worse than someone else's. He's simply saying from a perspective in the kingdom of God, when you think about the brokenness around you, you should start with yours and your issue should be bigger. So if I do this, like half the room disappears, right? It's all that I can focus on. If I hold it way out there, it's like the size of a golf ball. And for you, it's really, really tiny. It wouldn't take very much at all to squish this golf ball from where, from where you are. Jesus is saying perspective-wise. When it comes to being in community in the kingdom of God, start with your own heart. You tend to have this double measuring. You tend to let yourself off the hook and say to somebody else, how dare you? But he says, actually, your issues should be really, really big. So, so second thing to notice Logs and specks are made out of the same stuff, right? It's not an issue of kind. It's an issue of degree. It's a matter of size, but it's made out of wood. This teaches us that sin has this leveling factor. And it's not that adultery is exactly the same as lust, right? Every spouse would rather you struggle with lust than you actually deal with adultery. In our world, Saying someone is an idiot the way that Matthew 5 prohibits is way better than murdering somebody. So we're not saying it's like all equal, all sin is equal. We are saying, though, in kind, it has the same roots. So the things that you deal with, you should have compassion and empathy and understanding for your brothers and sisters. What they're dealing with is probably different than yours, but it's of the same kind. Right? What we're talking about is like, the size of it, not actually the substance of it. This is Jesus' main point, right? Adultery and lust have the same roots. So like a desire for control will make one person be a workaholic and make another person avoid all risk altogether. It would make one person save every penny they ever got so they're protected financially and make another person give everything away to leverage all their relationships so they have people in their corner when they need them. Same issue of control makes somebody neurotic one direction and somebody else neurotic the other direction. But what Jesus is saying, though, is, hey, it has the same substance to it. And what we normally do in the community is we see somebody struggling with whatever it is and we say, how dare they? Or I would never. 
And in the kingdom of God, actually, there's a humility to go, oh man, you give me enough time? You give me enough distance in my heart? You let me drift long enough? I'm capable of all of that. Because the same roots that's in them is, in, is inside of me. And so it deals with like anger and anxiety and shame. And actually those things become diminished when we realize, man, I actually am capable of what everybody else is capable of. And it's only the grace and mercy and kindness of God that keeps that from happening and that actually heals the wounds by which that thing would take root in my heart and grow to something much, much larger. One is a matter of perspective, right? You start with your heart. Rather than a double standard, you actually, if there's going to be a double standard, you say, my own sin is the worst. I'm the chief of sinners, the way the scriptures talk. Not because you live in shame, but because you're just so aware of your brokenness, which then creates compassion as you begin to deal with your brother and sister's speck in their eye. And there's this issue of degrees or kinds, right? It's like, it's the same kind of stuff, and you're dealing with like, the roots of unbelief. And so you can find yourself in a space so you might never make that exact same decision. You can move towards them with compassion. And here's what's interesting. The scriptures actually lump together lots of things, right? So Jesus puts adultery and lust. He puts murder and hate in the same categories. Let me give you a couple of other passages. Maybe just write these down. This is James chapter 2. James chapter 2 says Jesus' little brother in verse 8 of James 2, he says this, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin. If you prefer a person because of their wealth or their advantage socially, if you show partiality, you are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one part has become guilty of all of it. That's crazy, and it's not crazy because we're talking about substance, and the standard is not our human standard, it's God's holy standard. The scriptures say that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. How short? Short. Is murder sh shorter than anger? Sure, but it's all short. All of us have come short, and he says, if you're guilty of one part, you're guilty of all of it. Now, he can't mean you're actually guilty of all of it. What he's saying is, it's as if you're guilty of all of it because it's all the same substance. It's all rooted in unbelief. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, don't murder. So if you commit adultery, but you don't murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be under judgment and in the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy for those who have shown no mercy. That's what he's saying about this double standard. But then he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. There's this equalizing of sin that brings us to a place where then we can equally receive Mercy. The gospel has this strong, stark, dark understanding of the human condition that says, hey, even if you're the best, you're top 1%, you are still guilty of eternal punishment. You go like, dang, I'm better than 99% of humanity. Right, but you still fell way short of the glory of God. Our standard is not the standard. It's God's holy standard in his word. And the scriptures say, from our birth and by our participation, we have fallen short because of our sin. You came by it, you inherited it, and you indulged it. You were set up and predisposed towards rebellion, and you practiced that. So you live under the wrath of God, the scriptures say. And to go there to that dark place actually now makes the mercy that triumphs over judgment that much better news. This is what Jesus is saying. So that's James 2. Here's 1 Corinthians 
chapter 6. Listen to the way he ties several things together. He kind of puts them on equal playing field. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? There's two kingdoms. Don't be deceived, neither will the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, here's that mercy, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. See the redemption that's in the middle of that as we actually own the equality of our sin in ways that make us distant from God and underneath His wrath. Jesus is saying, hey, there's a same substance because it comes from the heart and yours may express itself based on your environment or your culture what you're used to, what you've practiced, what you had available to you, your disposition of your personality, what was tolerated in your community, what was modeled by your parents, what you got away with, what your friends did. All of those things would shape your choices of how you would express the flesh, but it's all of the flesh. So, so perspective, you want to, in a community, go, man, I understand the gravity of my sin. So when I'm dealing with you, I don't say, how dare you? I go, oh man, I have dared I don't say, how could you? I say, oh man, I, I could and I, I have. And our expressions might be different, right? There's even some lists that throw like disobedience to parents next to murder and adultery and sexual morality. You're like, the level field is pretty broad because all of us have fallen short. The standard is not being better than your neighbor. It is the holiness of God, right? It's allegiance to the king that Jesus says we have been in rebellion to. All right, so it's the perspective. It's the same substance and then third it's an invitation to repentance what it means to have this log removed is repentance it's not reform it's not you trying harder and doing better it's not you pretending it's not you promising it's you repenting the way logs are removed is through repentance and there's something about like doing this work of repentance that actually fights against the shame and anxiety and anger that we feel about someone else's sin. When we can feel the fresh grace of God washing over us, when that log is actually removed and begins to be healed from our eyes, then we have hope for our neighbors. When we've actually experienced our own need for grace, we're eager to actually share that with someone else. So the first step is your own repentance, right? Understand perspective-wise, yours is big. Understand that it's all the same substance and understand the way it's removed is through repentance. And that sets you up to have hope for your neighbor and the speck that's in their eye. Jesus used this illustration to kind of help us understand. He's not saying sin is no big deal. He's not saying let everybody do whatever they want. But if there's a speck in someone's eye, it is loving to actually remove it. It would be unloving just to say, I don't want to judge. I'm just going to let that thing get infected and keep going. That would be an unloving move. And to the degree that you miss your own log, your own brokenness, your own sin, you miss the leverage or the springboard or the opportunity or the desire to share the good news of the grace of God with other people. All you can share with them is fixing it, trying harder and doing better and stop being embarrassing. You can't actually promise them this transformation that you're experiencing as your own wounds begin to be healed. Right? There's massive applications in our relationships. And time and time again, whether it's like an intimate relationship, like a marriage or with friends or in family, I've seen the power of repentance begin to break log jams in a relationship, pun intended. I've seen when someone would just stop and say, I am really sorry. Please forgive me. 
to watch things begin to unravel that have been just so cold and tied up and bound for so long. It is the act of repentance. It's the currency of the kingdom. Repentance is the currency of the kingdom, both with God and with each other. And because of what Christ has done, you're not just saying, I'm sorry, and I'm going to pay you back. You're saying, I'm sorry. And Christ has covered that. Christ has already atoned for that. So I don't have to live in the doghouse. I don't have to waller in shame. I don't have to try to pay you back again. We have the same substance of our sin. Now I can move towards offering you the kind of forgiveness that I have received. Man, it will change your marriage. It'll change the way you relate to your kids. It'll change the way that you relate to your parents. Hey, if you're single and you're looking for a, a mate, a spouse, you're on the hunt, you're going, man, what's the quality I should be looking for? Someone who's quick to repent. I would say there is nothing sexier than somebody willing to repent quickly. And it's super hard to make out with somebody who has a log in their eye. You just simply can't do it, right? So what you're looking for as a single person is not their body, it's not their job, it's not their earning potential. It is their reflex to apply the gospel to their own life. Because when they're doing that, oh, they'll be quick to do that for you. Right? Husbands and wives, when you think about your own brokenness, your need for grace, when you sit in that in a regular way, you're quick to apply and offer that to your spouse. What Jesus is saying is not just don't say to somebody you're out of bounds. It's saying deal with your own being out of bounds first. And because Christ is king and the king has come and died in your place, there's no threat for you to have honesty and integrity to say, hey, there are places where I have blown it. But to the degree that we're stuck in shame or anxiety or fear, we tend to resist the honesty, the very honesty that would bring healing. And we try to cope and manage. We try to explain it away. We try to just compensate for it. And what Jesus is offering is actually the removal of that log. There is grace embedded in what Jesus is saying. So here's what one scholar said. What Jesus does here is complex. He creates self-awareness leading to self-judgment, but this leads to humility, which in turn leads to repentance and sanctification, and this leads to the kind of humility that treats other sinners with mercy. It creates a kingdom society shaped not by condemnation, but humility, love, and forgiveness. What Jesus is telling us in the kingdom of God as we relate to each other is it's possible for you to be forgiven and to start with your own need for grace is the way that we live together in a grace-filled community. More than just preaching to somebody else, more than being judgmental about their brokenness, you start with your own brokenness and then move towards theirs. Now, next week, we will just spend the entire time on verse 6 because he has a warning here that that actual humility could get misused. That disposition of humility and gentleness and vulnerability could actually be misused in a community. So there's a, a caution or a boundary, right? It's not just always only make it about you and your brokenness. There actually are specks in their eye. There are actually things they need to deal with as well, right? Which goes to this place of application in verse 5. After he's kind of talked through what it means to deal with your own brokenness, he says, hey, you hypocrite, the one who says one thing and does another, who says they love one thing, doesn't actually love it, the one who promises something but actually doesn't engage it with their heart, those who are one way outwardly but different inwardly, first take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother or sister's eye. He goes from this illustration to giving us two goals. 
hey, the reason why you want to repent, obviously, is so you can be reconciled to God. But if you will do that, then you can actually move towards your brother and sister and actually help them with their dysfunction. So in this comedic moment where Jesus is holding this big stick and he's like swinging around, you can just imagine like trying to get at somebody and help them with the speck in there with this huge stick in yours. But as you tried to get to theirs to help them, you'd be beating them in the head with this stick, right? So he's saying, first stop. And if you'll stop and repent, that's what qualifies you to offer help to somebody else. When you're cherishing your own sin and brokenness and excusing it and explaining it away in your own sin and anger and shame, you actually can't help them. But if you'll receive that grace for yourself and remove this barrier, then you can actually begin to draw close to them. So, so it's closeness is a goal. And then actually helping them, right? Saying, I'd love to help you with this speck in your eye. First, remove the log out of your own eye. And then here's the goal. So you would be able to see clearly to take the speck out of their eye. It's not an either or. It's a first and then a then. First, deal with your sin. Not make it all about you, but deal there first. Freshly apply the gospel to yourself. And then you'll be able to see clearly to apply the gospel good news of what Christ has done to the speck that is in your brother or sister's eye. And when that happens, we become the kind of community that doesn't traffic in hypocrisy and doesn't try to avoid hypocrisy with apathy, just not caring. Like the best way to not be a hypocrite is just to not care. We can actually avoid hypocrisy with empathy. And not, not a disconnected person, but one who actually knows their own need for grace, who sees it, feels it, has experienced it. Again, not just the weight of your sin, but the liberation of forgiveness. Because the gospel goes both directions. It goes to the gravity of our sin. It goes to this depth of our brokenness that you have to be honest about. But you get to be honest about it, and to the degree that you're honest about it, it brings about liberation and freedom. If Jesus only died for the surface behavioral sins that people see, that's a really shallow redemption. But that he died not just for murder, but for the thoughts that give rise to that, to the entitlement and uh, pride and things that would say if somebody else, that person's a fool. He died for that all the way to that bottom. Not just for the adulterer, but for the person who has longed to consume somebody else in their lust. But there's freedom and liberation from all of that. So the Christian worldview is the honesty you have about your brokenness brings about liberation and freedom. And not just for you for your brothers and sisters can we be the kind of community that when someone is jammed up in sin they're broken they're caught they're trapped that we say not just how dare you but oh jesus has died for that and it wouldn't be like a bible study that you've heard somebody else give it wouldn't be a sunday school lesson you had as a kid it would be that morning's experience for you it would be you going man i know the need to hear again the good news of jesus satisfying all of my longings because i have chased so many other longings illegitimately and hurt myself and other people and Christ loved me and forgave me in fact that love and forgiveness is actually what begins to heal and put a salve on that wound so that it actually becomes less compelling next time because your sin is motivated by the idea that you're by yourself that you're entitled that you deserve but you're also alone you have to take care of yourself and when you're in that headspace man you'll be open to all kinds of dysfunction and sin and abuse and brokenness so to hear that you're not alone, that you don't have to like prove yourself. Christ has already died. The gospel good news actually doesn't just wash away your sin, 
Titus says it trains us towards godliness because it convinces us that the love of God is real and substantive and it begins to actually change us. Okay, I think you agree with the opening line of this text, whether you're a Christian or not. Hey, you shouldn't be judgmental. Check. Everybody's saying yes. Hey, can you go to the depth of what he's saying here of to the degree you know you've been forgiven? That's the ability you have to actually help other people experience forgiveness. Can you go into this text that says actually God offers redemption and forgiveness for you so you don't have to be hypocritical. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to hide. You can actually be honest. And when you're not hypocritical, it puts you in the best position to be redemptive with your brothers and sisters to actually help them. Hey, so like when you're stuck in a jam, whatever it is, right? It's an addiction. It's, it's a relationship that you've overspent. You've done something at your work. You, you, you yelled at your boss and got fired. Whatever it is, you want to find somebody who's been there and hear how they got through that, right? So, so it's in a space where we are facing something catastrophic and we go, man, who has been in this space? So why do we do that? Because that person we imagine won't judge us. They'll understand how we got there. But they'll also be able to tell us how to apply the grace of Jesus to begin to get out of that. There's something about the community that begins to transform and change to the degree that we understand the good news of the gospel and receive it ourselves and then speak it to our brothers and sisters. Could you just imagine what our community would be like if we stopped bludgeoning each other in self-righteousness, stopped hiding our own brokenness, stopped pretending there weren't things protruding out of our eyes, saw our issue as the biggest thing so that it could actually be healed, that it mattered to Jesus, so it could actually be transformed and changed. We saw all sin as equal in God's eyes and actually coming from the same sources so there weren't like appropriate sins and inappropriate sins. It all was just sin, which means all of it could actually be healed and redeemed and changed and transformed. Hey, not to have a cheap name change plug here, but we would be a hopeful community if we hear this word and we believe that the logs in our eyes could actually be dealt with and we deal with them. Not just believe it could happen, but you actually engage that. And when you actually engage that, then you can offer the hope of Jesus to someone else with integrity. Here's what, you can be a hypocrite and share the gospel, but has this like staying power when the good news of the gospel is fresh for you, not something that's been managed when it's something that you taste on a regular basis, which is why preaching the gospel to ourselves is essential. It's why gathering together to remind each other of our gospel identity is essential. It's why we take communion every week to freshly remind ourselves to never get more than seven days away from hearing the good news that Christ died in your place to set you free, which in this passage would be Christ died in your place, take the log out of your eye so you don't have to let the thing sit there and get infected. And with that fresh mercy and grace kind of on your lips, you are more ready, you're more willing, and you're more qualified to actually speak to the brokenness of your brothers and sisters. Oh, that we would be a kind of a gospel community that takes this teaching serious, that deals with the logs in our eyes so that we can deal with a speck in theirs. It's far from judgmental to say, hey, you're in a jam. There's pain in your life. God really cares about that. He wants to set you free. That's not judgmental. To actually leave a speck in someone's eye and pretend it's not there and let it get infected is the essence of unlove. To try to help them actually engage that and say, this is not good for you. This will irritate. This will get infected. This will grow worse. This will actually blind. This will get in a space where there's all kinds of implications that you won't want. Let me actually help you get to Jesus, who's the one who can help you take this thing out.
And I know what it's like to repent, and I can tell you what that feels like so you could actually do it as well. That becomes a loving community. And so we might just say it this way to close. The only way to not be judgmental is to look to the one true judge. The only way to not be judgmental is to stop being our own little kings and to look to the one true judge. And Jesus says it actually is that bad. It's actually so bad that our only solution was that God himself would die in our place. Like the worst thing has already been said about you so you don't have to hide anymore. Because that's been said, the grace that he offers, that he died in there on your behalf on the cross in a way that makes you free and whole because that's part of the gospel good news as well you can come with confidence and when you receive that you'll want to offer that to other people i think that's where jesus is taking us and then next week we'll talk about hey was there a boundary to that could that ever go too far but here's the great news today rest in the fact that the grace of jesus is never too far it's never too extreme nor is it too far away He actually promises to heal you and forgive you even now. If you're not a follower of Jesus, what we've been rehearsing together is the good news of the Christian story, that God loves you. He takes your sin really serious, but he takes you serious enough to make a way for you to be forgiven and free. And the way he did that, the scriptures say, is he died on a cross. He absorbed the penalty for all of your sin when he did that. All of your unrighteousness was placed on him so you could be forgiven. And because he was a perfect, spotless sacrifice, He had the power and the ability to actually bear the weight of your sin because he had no sin himself. He could become sin for you because he had no sin. And what he asks you to do is simply by faith, trust him. And that's how you do this log work is through repentance and trust. That's the invitation of Christianity, man. If that makes sense to you this morning, if you'd like to trust Jesus, I'll be sitting right up here as we sing the next song. I would love to talk with you about that. For those who are trusting Jesus, we'll take communion. Because communion is a representation of that sacrifice, right? The broken body and shed blood of Jesus. And it's the way we rehearse where this forgiveness and grace actually comes from. And so Christian, would you just sit in the good news for a moment that the biggest thing about you has actually already been solved. What was most broken about you, even what you're capable of, has already been addressed in Jesus. So there's freedom. Would you taste that fresh as you experience this little wafer and this little juice, which is such a small representation, but it's meant to train your heart to receive the kindness and mercy and goodness and nourishment of the gospel. Pray and receive that yourself and then ask God to make you the kind of person that walks in integrity with their own sin and brokenness so they can help other people with their sin and brokenness. Do that and then we'll sing together as we go. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thanks for what you've done. Thanks that you are the righteous judge and as the judge, you took our judgment upon yourself. What must you be like that you take the sin of your enemies and you absorb it through great pain to yourself so we can be free? I just pray even as those words leave my lips, it would hit the hearts of the people in the room in such a way that it begins to heal, begins to call them close to you, begins to give them confidence that if they repent, there's healing for them, that we can actually be a gracious community because you are so gracious. Would you train our hearts that direction. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us online. 
Leeway Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. For more information about us and our ministry, please visit us at www.leewaybaptist.com.